glad to have each and every one of you here, especially our visitors. You chose to be with us this morning. We recognize that. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for your presence here. We hope that you're edified and encouraged by the assembly, by the singing, by the prayers, by the preaching from God's word. We're also thankful for those who took the trip to Branson. Recognize we got in real late last night, so glad to see each and every one of you here this morning. But along with that, this morning's lesson comes from the book of Esther. It seemed fitting to speak from that book today since many of us saw the Esther play, Esther play yesterday in Branson. Uh, however, we're not going to go through the whole book of Esther this morning. We're going to make our way up to chapter 4, and then we'll take a look at the providence of God in the life of Esther and in Mordecai. For the sake of time this morning, we're going to be doing quite a bit of summarizing. So I want to encourage each and every one of you to go back and read the entire book of Esther on your own, which is really, it's just a short 10-chapter book, but I want you to go back and read so you can pick up all the details and verify the things that I'm teaching this morning. In this book of Esther, we're going to read about God's faithfulness, his faithfulness in preserving the Hebrews and protecting them from their enemies. We're going to see the faithfulness of God on display and his ability to put people into particular places at particular times to ensure that his will is accomplished. This book has the ability to strengthen our faith in God as we come to understand his love for his people and his power over all things. Now the account that we're going to read about today occurred at a point in time in history when the Persians were the dominant power in the world. You can see on the map there on the screen the colors indicate the vastness of the Persian Empire. For reference, I've pointed out Jerusalem, and also I've pointed out Susa, which is where the accounts of this book take place. In the King James translation, you will find the word Susa is translated Shushan. So you should understand that Susa and Shushan are one and the same. They are a city in the Persian Empire. In previous years, God allowed the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem to be attacked and basically destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians because of the Hebrews' disobedience to his commands, because of their embracing of the evils of things such as idolatry. This was all prophesied, this was all said it would happen, and it did happen just as God said. Many of those Jews that were in Jerusalem, they were carried away in exile. Exile, carried away to Babylon, away from their home, just as Jeremiah the prophet prophesied. And they remained there in Babylon for 70 years in exile. And then in history we understand that the Medes and the Persians, or the Medo-Persian Empire, they overtook the Babylonian Empire as the dominant power in that region of the world. And God led Cyrus, King Cyrus, the king of Persia, to allow the Jews that were in exile to return home, or at least those who chose to. He allowed them to return home. They went and they rebuilt the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the city. And there ended up being three waves of exiles that returned home to Jerusalem from Babylon. Or basically the Bible tells us about 60,000 men, women, and children returned home to Jerusalem that we can read about. Uh, the first group of exiles was led by Zerubbabel, the second was led by Ezra, and the third group was led by Nehemiah. And we can read about these accounts in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Biblical scholars estimate uh, that the events of this book that we're reading today, the book of Esther, occur between the return of that first wave of people and the second wave of people returning to Jerusalem. So this book that we're reading, the book of Esther, is about those Jews that chose to stay in Persia rather than return to Judah. So as we get to chapter 1, we'll start talking about just, just some background and context here. At the beginning of the book of Esther, we find that Ahasuerus is the king, and his royal palace is in the city of Susha. Now, I know that those that were in Branson yesterday, Xerxes is the name that was mentioned uh, in the, uh, about who this king was. But I want you to understand, in the King James translation, Ahasuerus is the name that is used. And so just be aware of that difference. In the third year of this king's reign, he decided to throw a festival, a festival for all of his officials, for all of his military leaders, for all of his princes, for all of his servants, basically to show off the riches of his kingdom, this vast kingdom of Persia. No expense was spared as this festival went on for 180 days, a long party. And at the end of this extravagant six-month festival, he then put on another festival, a week-long or seven-day festival right there in the city of Susa. And the Bible tells us that on the seventh day of this festival, we learned that the king, half drunk, decided that he wanted to show off the beauty of his wife, the queen, Vashti. And so he called for her to make an appearance before all, before all there at the banquet to show off her beauty. But for some reason, the Bible tells us that she refused to show herself, causing the king to become embarrassed and enraged. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why she refused, but since the Bible mentions that the king was married with wine or drunk, that leads me to believe that his request of the queen was quite inappropriate. Either way, the queen Vashti refused to present herself, and it caused a great embarrassment for the king. And so the Bible tells us that the advisors of the king, his advisors, told him that not only was he wronged by the queen, by her actions, but she wronged all the officials, all the people throughout his kingdom and provinces. This was a sign of disrespect that the queen had shown to the king. And so word of her conduct would spread throughout the kingdom like wildfire. And before you know it, women everywhere would be treating their husbands in such a way. So something had to be done. And so they advised the king. They said, disrespect, this disrespect from your queen has to be addressed immediately. And so a law was enacted that Queen Vashti could no longer be queen. She was no longer worthy to be the queen. And a woman more deserving should be chosen to replace her. And so this seemed to be the appropriate thing for the drunken king, and so he signed off on his law, and it became law. Vashti was replaced. And that brings us to chapter 2 of the book of Esther, where the wrath of the king has subsided after a period of time. And he remembered his queen. He remembered Queen Vashti and the law that he had signed, perhaps foolishly. And apparently he missed her. And so the servants that ministered to the king, the Bible tells us, they began an official search throughout the kingdom, throughout all the provinces. And it was their goal to bring in all of the attractive young virgin women into the palace of the king. All of these women would be brought in to his palace and they would become part of the king's harem. All of these women, as they were brought in, they would undergo a 12-month period of purification and beauty treatments, 
before they were even allowed to see the king. And so the, the woman that ultimately pleased the king the most would be chosen to be his wife and his queen, thereby replacing Queen Vashti. If you're familiar with, uh, I'll say, despicable TV show, The Bachelor, that makes a mockery of marriage, you can liken that to this, except that these women were not here by choice. They were taken away from their homes. They were forced to be here, and they were pulled from their homes, and they were going to be part of the king's harem, certainly not by their choice. It is in verse 5 of chapter 2 where we're introduced to a man named Mordecai. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, the Bible says, Now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So the Bible tells us, we learn in these verses, that uh, Mordecai was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew that had been taken captive during the, the, the reign of the Babylonians. And so we see here that he is a man of responsibility, for he is caring for his cousin, his younger cousin, Esther, who was an orphan. The Bible says that he cared for her as if she was his own daughter. And the Bible goes on to tell us that Esther was very attractive. Therefore, she was obviously one of the women that was selected or forced to be in the king's harem, potentially becoming the king's new wife and queen. The Bible reveals to us that she quickly found favor with the king's eunuch who was responsible for the care of the women that he provided for. So he provided her rations and cosmetics and gave her the best boarding in the harem. It is in this chapter that we learn that under the guidance of Mordecai, Esther did not reveal the fact that she was a Jew. At this time, the Bible does not explain to us exactly why. The one possibility is that there is some kind of anti-Jewish bias that existed in the kingdom and perhaps Esther prematurely revealing that information about herself would cause unnecessary trouble. But we don't know for sure. That's just me speculating. So during this 12-month beautification period that all the women were going through, Mordecai continued to come in in front of the harem daily so that he could see how Esther, his cousin, was doing. Even though she was under the care of the king, he continued to show his care and concern for her. And I imagine that he wasn't too excited or thrilled for her to be a part of this ordeal, but he really had no power in the matter, had no say in the matter. And so at the end of the 12 months, the Bible tells us that Esther finally had her turn to go before the king. And the Bible reveals that the king loved her. He loved her above all the other women and immediately made her the queen, Queen Esther. And so the end of chapter 2 reveals to us just a bit more about the character of Mordecai. Here in verse 21 it says, In those days while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. And the thing was known, made, uh, was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. 
So context leads me to believe that Mordecai was some kind of servant or porter for the king, for he was eventually, he was uh, continually at the king's gate. But here we see that Mordecai is upright and he is honest as he works to preserve the life of the king, this king who has taken his cousin into his harem. He cared enough for the king to expose this assassination plot. The Bible notes that once Mordecai's accusation was proven to be true, the two men were hanged. But Mordecai was never acknowledged. He was never rewarded for his efforts. But his actions, what he did, was written into the king's records or the chronicles. Yes, there was no reward for his actions, and we read of no complaints from Mordecai. He did the right thing and received nothing in return, at least at that time. In chapter 3, we are introduced to a man named Haman. The Bible tells us, after these things, the king Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamaratha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Hazuarius, even the people of Mordecai. So the Bible tells us here that the king promoted Haman to a position above all the other officials in the kingdom. And he ordered all of his officials and servants to bow the knee to Haman and to pay respect to him. But the Bible tells us that Mordecai just could not bring himself to do that. He could not bow the knee. He could not reverence this man Haman. And when asked by the other servants why he refused to bow, his only response was that he himself was a Jew. So we don't know exactly why he refuses to obey the king's command and bow the knee. And I'm sure that he feels that, it's, uh, I'm not sure if he felt that it was too close to worshiping a man or some form of idolatry. But there are some biblical scholars that look to Mordecai and look at the reasoning why. And they look to Haman's lineage. For, he, for the Bible said that he was a descendant of King Agag. So if we back up a little bit to 1 Samuel 15, dig into a little bit of history here. We can read about King Agag and how he lived during the time of the days of King Saul. And he was king of the Amalekites. And because of the evil behavior of the Amalekites toward the Jews during their exodus from Egypt, God commanded King Saul to totally and utterly destroy the Amalekites, all men, men women, children, and animals. That was the command given to Saul. But King Saul disobeyed. He disobeyed the command, for he almost destroyed all of them, but he chose to spare the life of the king and the best of their flocks, the best of their animals. And so upon discovering King Saul's disobedience, Samuel, the prophet of God, rebuked Saul 
and he proceeded to kill King Agag by cutting him into pieces. Seeing that Haman is a descendant of King Agag and Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul, that could explain Mordecai's behavior. But as I said before, the Bible never explicitly reveals it, so we are left to speculate like this. Either way, word of Mordecai's behavior, his refusal to bow the knee, made its way back to Haman. And it angered him. It angered him to the point that he was ready to not only kill Mordecai, but he wanted to kill all the Jews of the kingdom. So he devised a plan to accomplish this. He went to the king, and he falsely accused all of the Jews of the kingdom, saying that they refused to obey the king's commands. And he suggested to the king, you'd be better off with all of them gone. It would be better off, this kingdom would be better off if all the Jews were killed. And so he encouraged the king to enact a law to destroy every last one of the Jews of the kingdom. And so the king agreed to Haman's plan, and it's, to me it's interesting how flippant they were with human life, willing to destroy all of the Hebrews. And so a date was chosen, the Bible tells us, the 13th day of the 12th month. So 11 months into the future, from the current time, all Jews of the kingdom of Persia will be put to death, and their property could be confiscated by those who persecuted them. And so the decree was written into law. The law was published throughout the whole kingdom to inform the people to be ready to act on the specified date. I mean, it's interesting to me to note that this king doesn't even know that his own wife, Esther, is a Jew, and he has just signed into law a law that will have her killed. Getting into chapter 4, the Bible says, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, referring to Haman's law that he got passed, Mordecai rent his clothes, and he put on sackcloth with ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry, and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told, told it her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. The Bible tells us that when Mordecai heard about this law, that he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went about the city publicly mourning, just as many of the other Jews throughout the kingdom. But we read here that he did not go beyond the king's gate, for no one was permitted to enter the king's presence while in mourning. As for the queen, we learned that Esther was pretty isolated from everything, uh, everything that was going on in the world world, for she didn't know about this law. But in time, Mordecai was able to relay messages to her about it, about all that had transpired, and he gave her instructions to go to the king and to petition him on behalf of her people. But the Bible tells us that Esther answered him back through a messenger, reminding him that although she is the queen, she can't just go into the king's presence when she feels like it or unannounced. The king was isolated in his own, in his, uh, in his own way for his own protection. To go into the king's presence, you had to be summoned by the king. This law even applied to the queen, his wife. If you went into the presence of the king uninvited, unannounced, 
the king would either extend the golden scepter, which showed that he approved of your presence and you were welcome, or the scepter was not extended and you were put to death. Since Esther had not been summoned before the king for over 30 days, she did not know whether his attitude toward her had changed. Had his love for her diminished? Had she lost favor with him? But Mordecai's reply to her was a wake-up call. And we read his reply here in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. It says, Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house <coughs> more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade him, Return, Mordecai, this answer. Go, gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me. And neither eat nor drink three days, night or day, I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. <coughs> Excuse me. So, so Mordecai told her, don't think that since you're part of the king's household, that you're that one and only Jew that's going to escape this death sentence. He told her, if you remain scared, if you remain quiet on this matter, deliverance for the Jews will come, but through someone else, while you and your father's household may be put to death. And then he said, besides, this may be why God has put you in such a position. Now, I could be giving Mordecai too much credit, because the Bible doesn't tell us his thought process. But my belief is that Mordecai knew the promises that God made to Abraham. Moses and David would not be fulfilled if the entire nation of Hebrews was wiped out. The promise of a Messiah through the Hebrews would not happen if Haman's plan was successful. Therefore, Mordecai, I believe, was confident that God would move to deliver his people from trouble. And Mordecai says that God could work through Queen Esther because of the unique position that she was in. Now, we see that Mordecai's words did prod Esther because she responded that, that he should assemble all the Jews in the city and instruct them to fast from food and drink for three days on her behalf. And in turn, she and her attendants would also fast in the same way. And at the end of these three days, she would go before the king, risking her life to petition for the lives of her people. Now, this isn't a lesson on fasting, but something must be mentioned here while we're passing by. In this, we see a godly example of dealing with a serious matter. The Jews were about to be wiped out. She and her attendants were going to fast, and they were going to pray. And she encouraged others to fast and pray along with them. As we, in our lives, encounter big situations, big trials, we see here the principle here. Fasting and praying is an appropriate response for us as we seek to focus on the spiritual and seek God's direction and guidance. Now, we won't go further into the book of Esther. If you went on a trip to Branson to see the production of Esther, you know what happens next. If you didn't go on a trip 
you may already know what happens next, but either way, I encourage you to, re to read the remaining of this book, to pick up at chapter 5 and read through the end and allow your faith to be built upon the reading of God's Word as you read and see how he took care of his people. But I want to take a moment and speak on the providence of God. We've had a couple of messages on this topic. <clears throat> I know that Jeff has spoken on the providence of God, and I know, I know that in a message uh, where I pointed it out in the life of Ruth, we can read about God's providence in the life of Joseph. We can read about God's providence in the life of Daniel. I describe God's providence as God's hand in causing things to happen, or God moving things to occur in a natural way according to his will. And in this book, we see God's hand in a number of places. Way back in the day, when Mordecai exposed that assassination plot <coughs> against the king, he was at the right place at the right time to hear of this plot. And something like that would have warranted some kind of reward. The king would have surely heaped some kind of praise and reward on him, but it didn't happen at that time when you think it should have. The reward was delayed until just the right time. And you'll read that as you continue to read the rest of this book. After three days of prayer, Esther had asked those to, to pr pray and fast with her. She went into the king's presence uninvited. As I said before, this could have brought about her own death. But the king instead had grace. He had mercy. And he invited her into his presence as he extended the golden scepter for her to come into his presence. Just another opportunity there where things could have gone awry. But God's hand was clearly involved. Later on in the book, later on in the book, we're going to learn about the king and his, uh, his inability to sleep that night. That night where uh, uh, Haman planned to hang Mordecai. He had hatched his plan, but the king was unable to sleep. Something caused sleep to flee from him. Now, in order to, to uh, occupy his time on a sleepless night, he's a king. Surely there's many things that he could have done, all kinds of things he could have done to, to uh, help bring about sleep. But for some reason, he chose to read the book of Chronicles or have the Chronicles or have the history of his kingdom read to him. And to me, it's interesting that out of all the Chronicles to be read, they brought up the account of Mordecai saving his life. The king was ashamed that no honor had been paid to Mordecai for his service. And so now that was on his mind. Out of all the Chronicles of history to be read, it was that that was read, how Mordecai was not rewarded. So that was on his mind, what should be done for this great act that Mordecai had done. And then it's at this time that Haman came in to the king's presence to ask for permission to hang Mordecai at this particular time. But first, the king posed a question to Haman and said, what should be done for the man who the king wants to honor? And that's where things started to unravel for Haman. If Haman had come in just a little bit earlier, just a little bit earlier, before the king had heard about the account about Mordecai, we've got a different ending. How things could have turned out so differently. But you see God's hand in there orchestrating things. But as you see God's hand there working through all of this for his purpose, it wasn't luck. It wasn't good fortune. It wasn't just coincidence. It was the hand of God in this matter in control the whole time. It was God's providence. So what is the point of reading through Old Testament books like this, of Esther, 
What do we profit from understanding these kind of details? Romans 15 and 4 tells us that for whatsoever things were written before time were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. We were able to read and see how God interacted in the lives of his people, how he took care of his people back then, and we find hope in these messages. Our faith can be strengthened, and so that we can conduct ourselves properly today because we see how God dealt with his people then and trust that as his people today, he will do the same for us. Today's reading reminds us that God is in control and is over all. Romans 8 and 28 tells us that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. This verse did not say that all things will always be good, but that all things will work together for good. Some things in life are going to be good. Some things in life are going to be bad. Some things, some of those bad things are going to be because of our own sin or because of our own foolishness. Some of those bad things will be because of time and chance, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Some of those things may be trials that God is using to refine us. No matter the case, for the faithful, God will allow all of them to work together for good in his will. The same God who was in control in the days of Esther is still on the throne today and is still in control. I doubt that Esther knew that she was part of God's plan at that time. She just did what she could in faith, and the will of God was accomplished. You don't know your role in God's plan. We don't know how God can use each one of us to accomplish his will. So we must be diligent in using our talents, our abilities, our opportunities that are presented, and all that we do, doing it in the name of the Lord and trusting that God is working, working things for our good and his glory. Looking to the reading this morning, may we find the strength to trust in God, even when we are facing difficult trials, because sometimes in our trials, it's probably the hardest time to trust God, because we may look on things and our vision and see that we, we see the answer, we see how it should be solved. Well, maybe trust in God in those times. Maybe trust that God's hand is at work, guiding all things to work together for good. Maybe we learn to trust God as he operates in our lives today. In today's message, the good news of salvation available to man was not necessarily mentioned. However, we will always offer the invitation to anyone who wants to come forward to be a Christian. Jesus is the Lamb of God that made a difference for us. He is a sacrifice that paid for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15 sums up the gospel message for us. It is there where we read that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. 2 Peter 3 and 9 tells us God's will for all mankind. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but it's long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Yes, God is long-suffering and he is patient. He allows this world to continue to turn so that all may have the opportunity to come to repentance. But that time will run out one day. And if you're not a Christian, we encourage you to tend to that matter today. In the book of Acts, we can read about the accounts of many choosing to become Christians. And we can read about what they did. They responded to the preaching of this gospel by believing the message, by having a change of mind or repenting, by confessing 
by choosing to be baptized, confessing Jesus Christ and being baptized for remission of sins. Nothing has changed. The same method of salvation applies today. If you want to become a Christian today, you can come forward. You can do that this morning. We encourage you. We will study with you and help you understand all the Bible says for you to do. And lastly, if there are any requests of the church, you can certainly make those known as you come forward as we sing the invitation song. Savior, calling me. Okay, I can't see here. All right, ready to do it? Okay, go ahead.